Erev Tov, good evening. Tonight we're continuing with our Expanding Horizons Shi'u. In the next part of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's introduction to the third volume of his Keter Shem Tov. By the way, I just got news from Israel that uh, Yeshivat Havat Shalom just printed, mamash, like in the last day or two, just printed two new volumes of unpublished writings of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. Uh, his Derashot on Parashat Shavua and other... Uh, pieces of Musar, I'm working on getting myself a copy in the United States, but it just came out in Israel, so don't be surprised if it takes a little bit longer to reach anywhere else. But that's exciting development in showing that the world cares to study more about the Torah of this special Chacham. I sent out a PDF by email as well as through Zoom, uh, uh, the Google Classroom. So if you look at the Zoom invitation in the Google Classroom, you will see that at the bottom of the Zoom invitation, there are two PDFs attached. Only one of them is relevant to this class, and that is the PDF of Keter Shem Tov, Volume 3. It should say Volume 3, 1 through 30. And we are on the top of the next page, so Roman numeral 12. I think that comes out to page 10 in your PDF. I believe so. We've discussed the last few weeks various episodes of infighting in the Jewish community, things that have caused for tremendous separation, or as we've said, the breach in the wall of Israel. This next topic is one that is tragic. I don't have another word for it aside from tragic. And it's also one that I am biased as to part of it, I will tell you that the, once somebody said that the job of every good educator is to protect their students from their own biases. And I think that that might be true. Maybe I should protect people from my bias if I was giving you a dry class on Jewish history. But being this is a Torah class, I cannot help that my bias will come through. But I, you, know, you all have the permission to do with the information that we'll learn today. Whatever it is that you feel you need to do with information today. We're on the top of page 12 in the Roman numerals. You see where it says Zayin? It's a, there's a few more sections, and it says Zayin. So Bisham Tov Gagin continues by saying the following. Hariv al-dvar ha-semicha ben Rabbi Yaakov berav uven Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib. The Riv, the quarrel, I don't know if that's the right word, because it's more of a war, mamash a war, between Rabbi Yaakov Berav, otherwise known as Mahari Berav, Mahari, Moreno Harav, Yaakov Berav, and the Maharal Bach, Rabbi Levi, Ben Chaviv. And every one of them had their own camp and their own uh, group that took their side. The first one was located in Svat, and the other one was in Yerushalayim. For those of you who've either read my book, or you've been to my shiurim on Maran, or anywhere else that I've discussed this a little bit, which episode of Jewish history am I referring to? Can someone help us understand a little of the background? What do we know in this shiur already about the matter of the Semicha, and the disputes of the Semicha in the year 1538?
Somebody knows something. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, shakor niyam noro. Mord, what did you say? Oh, wait, Pam, were you saying something? Sorry, I guess I'm hearing two people at once. No, no, was somebody trying to restart the Sanhedrin? Correct. Somebody was trying to reconvene a Sanhedrin. Uh, that's right. Mord, do you have any further details on that? Um, well, I mean, I'm sure you're going to cover that this year, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, uh, there, was a, there, was a, there was a suggestion to start, to start it, um, and then there was, you had to have, like, the acceptance of everyone, and then he said to Yerushalayim, and people in Yerushalayim were like, no, 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 it's going to come from us, a bit of a turf war, and it kind of didn't go anywhere. Fabulous. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. So this much is that the rabbis of Tzfat, am I frozen at all for you? Can you, you hear me fine? I don't hear you, that's the problem. No, you're good. I, can, I mean, I can hear you. Maybe. One second. Yes, okay, now I hear. Perfect. This is exactly what I wanted to hear, and this is, this is essentially what happens. You have the Spanish expulsion, 1492. Let me set the stage. 1492, the Jews are expelled from Spain. That process causes the Sephardim to pick themselves up, or maybe perhaps even throw them out. In, in the words of Rabbi Moshe David Gaon, the father of the Israeli actor, uh, singer, Yoram Gaon. Rabbi Moshe David Gaon writes in the introduction to his Yehudea Mizrach, Be'eretz Israel, the Middle Eastern Jews, or Eastern Jews in Eretz Israel. He writes that we are Sephardim because we are those who the land of Spain vomited us out of. And I think that's a very important uh, definition of what it means to be a Sephardi. Uh, these vomited Jews of Spain find themselves in Portugal. Portugal ends up in the Ottoman Empire, and that spans a huge region. And ultimately, this leads to Jewish settlement of Eretz Israel. For whatever reason that is beyond the scope of today's conversation, the main group of Jews living in Eretz Israel at that time did not go to Yerushalayim, but rather found themselves centered in the city of Tzfat. Anyone know the difference in populations between the Jews of Tzfat and, and uh, Yerushalayim? If I could just put it into perspective, there were 10,000 Jews in Tzfat at the time of this episode, and there were 1,500 Jews in Yerushalayim. So it's not double the population, it's, it's, it's many, 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 many more times the population of Jews that are in Tzfat by the way, you should know that people blame Tzvat, that the Mekubalim dragged people to Tzvat, and that's why people went to Tzvat over Yerushalayim. There were Mekubalim who attributed later tragic events in Jewish history to the fact that the Chachamim had abandoned Jerusalem for Tzvat. I mean, they did not view this favorably, this move away from Jerusalem to Yerushalayim. Nonetheless, that's what it was. From the rabbis who are living in Tzvat in this time period, can you throw out some names for me? Who are the rabbis living in Tzvat in this time period? Aside from the two we mentioned, Mahari Berav and Rabbi Levi Ibn Khabir. Name me some more Chachamim. Maran, okay, very good. So Maran, Rabbi Yosef Karo. Rabbi Moshe Kodavera, the Ramak, fabulous. Keep going, keep going. Rabbi Shlomo Halevi Al-Kavetz, the author of the Chadodi, correct? The Rizal, very good, and his students, Rabbi Chaim Vital. 
and all of the uh, sub-students of the Arizal. You get a picture that some of the most famous Chachamim that you've ever heard of, Kabbalists or not, are sitting in the city of Tzfat. You mentioned Rabbi Eliezer the author of Yidid Nefesh. You have a tremendous amount of Chachamim here. Chachamim of Yerushalayim in the same time period, aside from Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib. Can you name them for me? We need to set the stage this way, that this entire episode happens in the wake of the Spanish expulsion, that the majority of Chachmei Israel that we know of are living in Tzfat, Ira Kodesh at this time, that there were Jews in Yerushalayim, and there were Chachamim in Yerushalayim. Chas v'shalom, we're not saying that. But it is a tremendously significant difference in quality and quantity that we're finding between the Jews, I'm not the Chachamim, the Jews of Tzfat and the Jews of Yerushalayim. And so at this point in Jewish history, the Jews who are living in Tzfat view themselves, perhaps rightfully so, as the center of the Jewish world, but most definitely the center of the Jewish population in Eretz Israel. It's post-Spanish expulsion. What that means for most Jews is that they've been uprooted once or twice or three times already from their homes, from their countries, from their birthplaces. A number of these Jews that have found themselves today in Sfat and Yerushalayim are not second or third or fourth generation Jews to the Spanish Inquisition. Many of them themselves were forced already from a young age to convert to Christianity, to Catholicism. And now they've come back to Israel to be free. And some of them even become the Chachamim of Yerushalayim. But Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib, we're going to talk about him and his Christian past in just a moment. But these are Jews who have felt the wounds of the Spanish Inquisition in their flesh. And now they're free. Now they're in Eretz Yisrael. Now they can return to be Jewish. But it's a tremendous amount of baggage that comes along with leaving exile, coming to Eretz Yisrael. And ultimately, whenever Jews get uprooted from one place to the next place, messianic fervor starts to build in the air. We're about the time of the redemption. Mashiach is going to come any moment. You start to hear talks like this anytime the world goes through some kind of upheaval. In the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, one of the messages I had to repeat over and over and over again was stop promising people that Mashiach is coming on Wednesday. Stop it. Every time the world goes through upheaval, there's somebody promising you false promises. This doesn't go against our guarantee that the Geulah can happen any moment. But that at the same time, we have to keep the balance and you have to keep the sanity going. You can't just fall prey to messianic fervor. Rabbi Moshe David Gaon in his book that I just mentioned to you, and you'll be hearing more about this book as time goes forward, mentions that there's a reason why among Sephardim, or perhaps I should say it better, that from the false Mashiachs that ever came to the Jewish people, so many of them were Sephardim. This direct connection to Eretz Israel, the belief that always we're going to go back to Eretz Israel, the constant talk about Mashiach, 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 meant that at any given point, the world of Sephardim, geographically and philosophically, the pan-Sephardic community, was always ready for Mashiach to come, and because of that there were people who took advantage of it. 
And it has to have that in mind that there are also those Chachamim who are aware of this reality and are trying to protect the Jewish community from those who they believe as offering people false messianic hope. But this is the generation that we're dealing with. This is the group of people that we're dealing with. As I told you in the beginning of our shiul, when we started these 12 episodes of infighting, I made one point very clear. Is that I'm not a historian, and I don't give shiurim in Jewish history. I believe there's tremendous value in studying Jewish history. But more important than studying what was, is understanding very well that all of these episodes, every single one of them, has direct correlation to problems we are facing in the Jewish community today. Ma'aseh siman l'banim, our rabbis tell us that things that happened to the forefathers, I'm borrowing a term, they will influence the children. Avot achlu boser banim It says that the forefathers ate unripe fruits and the children's teeth suffer from it. Things that happened, ma'ashehaya, those that happened, things that were, that's what, that's what will be in the future. And it's important that we delve into this sugya, but understanding properly that this is not over. It may seem like this war is over, but it's not over. And to understand that better, let's read inside these two names once again, and allow me permission to begin painting the story for you by elaborating first on these two personalities. Rabbi Yaakov Berav and Rabbi Levi Ibn Khabib, or Ben Khabib in Hebrew. Let's start with the older of the two. Rabbi Yaakov Berav is born in 1474 in Spain, and he passes away in 1541 in Sfat, in the Ottoman Empire of Eretz Israel. That makes him about 67 years old. He's known, like I keep telling you, he's known as the Mahari Berav. He's buried in the cemetery in Sfat. His rabbi was none other than Mahari Abu Hav, Rabbi Tzchak Abu Hav. Are you familiar with Rabbi Tzchak Abu Hav? Anyone here been to the synagogues of the Sevardim and Sfat? So you've been to the Abu Hav synagogue, the Berav synagogue, Maran, the Bet Yosef synagogue, all of these, the Arizal has two synagogues, one Ashkenazi, one Sephardi. You have all these, but they Knesset. These are the Chachamim that we're talking about. From the students of Mahari Berav are some of the most famous Chachamim you've ever heard of. Most prominently, as Mord mentioned, Maran. Maran Rabbi Yosef Karo is a student of Mahari Berav. Rabbi Moshe Mitrani, the Mabit, who we mentioned in my Sephardi Chavurashiu, was also a contemporary and a, a opponent at times of Maran Abed Yosef. Rabbi Avraham Shalom, Rabbi Israel Dukuriel, Rabbi Menachem Abavli, a number of Chachamim that were from the, the cream of the crop of Tzfat are students of Mahari Berav. We have a number of writings left behind from Mahari Berav. But most importantly, is that when Mahari Berav comes to Eretz Israel, he is intent on building a Sanhedrin, putting together a supreme court of Jewish law that will once again restore the national honor of the Jewish people to its place, but also perform some functional purposes which he believed were necessary to bring about the next stage of the Jewish people's development, and we'll discuss those details in just a moment. Something goes wrong. Mahari Berav, at a certain point in time, flees Eretz Israel. He finds himself in Egypt in 1510, uh, and he sits in the 
Bedin over there in Egypt. At a certain point in time, he comes back to Eretz Yisrael. He lives in Yerushalayim for a very short period, and it seems to us that when he was in Yerushalayim, that's when he became familiar with the Mahabach and Bilavi bin Khabib, and then continues back to Tzfat, where he spends the rest of his life. Let's discuss now Rabbi Levi ben Khabib. Rabbi Levi ben Khabib Let's tell you a little bit why why Mahari Berav ends up leaving Eretz Israel. This war between Mahari Berav and Rabbi Levi ben Khabib becomes personal. There are many personal insults that get hurled between these two Chachamim. At a certain point in time, the desire of the Mahari Berav to found the Sanhedrin in Sfat was presented to the Turkish authorities as a plot for the Jewish people to restore their independence in their national homeland, which let's be honest, that's pretty much what it was. And the Turks begin to persecute Mahari Berav. Rabbi Levi bin Khabib is born in 1483 in Samora, which is also Spain, Castilla. He passes away in 1545 in Yerushalayim, that makes him about 62 years old. His father is none other than the famous Rabbi Yaakov ben Khabib. Tell me why you know the name Rabbi Yaakov ben Khabib. Those of you in my Thursday class, you better know the answer to this question. He's the author of the En Yaakov. Thank you, Rabbanit. He is the author of the En Yaakov, which is essentially a compilation of all the Agadot, the non-legal parts of the Talmud. This is his father, Rabbi Yaakov ben Chaviv. His rabbi is also Rabbi Tzchak Abu Hav, but if I'm not mistaken, this is a different Rabbi Tzchak Abu Hav, the one who comes from Castilia, but I could be incorrect, it could be the same Rabbi Tzchak Abu Hav, but if I remember correctly, there are two Rabbi Tzchak Abu Havs in this period in Jewish history. He has a number of students, Rabbi Sachar ben Mordechai Evan Susan, Rabbi Moshe Castro, Rabbi Yaakov Castro, Rabbi Shemuel de Medina. We have also a few writings left behind Rabbi Labi Mechaviv, in 1498, his family flees to Portugal. Flees from Portugal, where they had fled from the Spanish expulsion, to Greece, to Saloniki. At a certain point in time, in 1513, Maralbach moves to Yerushalayim, Ira Kodesh. In 1525, he decided to move to Tzfat, and that's where everything is happening. Tzfat is the city where all the Chachamim are in, for whatever reasons that I don't know. It doesn't work out for him in Tzfat, and he finds himself back in Yerushalayim. And we can assume that either when he was in Tzfat, or when Rabbi Yaakov Berav was in Yerushalayim, that something developed between these two Chachamim, both a friendship and, and, and a quarrel, and that ultimately this sets the stage for the dispute that is going to take place surrounding the founding of the Sanhedrin. 
Before we discuss why there was a Sanhedrin, let's first discuss what is a Sanhedrin and what possible purpose was there in founding a Sanhedrin at this point in Jewish history. If you'll do me a favor and go to safaria.org or if you have the app on your phone or if you have a Rambam next to you, you want to open up the laws of the Sanhedrin. That's going to be Rambam. You want to click Safaria? Click Halakha. After you click Halakha, click on Mishneh Torah. After Mishneh Torah, you want to go down to the book of Shoftim. And after you find Shoftim, you want to click on the laws of the Sanhedrin. Let's look at Halakha, chapter 1, Halakha 1. Says the Rambam, Mitzvah taseh shel Torah limenot shoftim v'shotrim. There's a biblical obligation for the Jewish people to appoint for themselves judges and officers. So this is a mitzvah de'oraita. We have an obligation, a biblical requirement to appoint for ourselves judges and officers. Look in Halakha, hey, five. Any city that does not have two giant chachamim, and he explains what they need to be giant chachamim, they need to be those who know how to rule in Halakha. Says the Rambam, You're not allowed to put a Sanhedrin there, even though there are thousands and thousands of Jews there, it doesn't make a difference on the matter of Jews, it's the matter amount of chachamim that are in that city. Now Sanhedrin, there's the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is a Greek word that we borrowed. Greek, Roman, I think it's Greek. That we borrowed to refer to our courts of law. But now let's talk about the Sanhedrin. Not the little courts, but the big Sanhedrin. If you look in chapter 2, Halakha 1. So go back to the arrow on top and select chapter 2. Go to Halakha 1. Ma'amidin Sanhedrin. Ben gidola, ben ela anashim chachamim The requirements to appoint someone to the Sanhedrin, to the large Sanhedrin or even the smaller ones. They have to be people who are wise and smart. Muflaim bechokmat Torah that are, are brilliant in the wisdom of the Torah. I'm translating loosely. Baale de'a that are, of course, these are legal terms, so you're going to have to define each one of them legally, but I'm just translating for the idea of it. Baale de'a those with broad wisdom, knowledge. Viodim k'tzat mishachokmot. In order for the Chachamim to be candidates for the Sanhedrin, you should listen carefully because for all of us who think that some of the great rabbis in the Jewish people are really great rabbis of the Jewish people, you should see the requirements for sitting on the Sanhedrin and you'll realize quite quickly that most of the Chachamim that we're familiar with in our generation are probably not Chachamim enough to be able to sit on the Sanhedrin. It's not just enough to know Torah well, 
but they have to know also other wisdoms. Kigon refuot, health, matters of health, medicine, mecheshbon, and mathematics, tkufot, and mazalot, and all the seasons and the constellations. They have to know they're familiar with all other religions and idol worships and everything that comes along with it. How could you judge somebody for idol worship if you don't understand idol worship? How can you discuss matters of halakha that you're not familiar with the science that goes into those halakhot? One cannot sit in the Sanhedrin and be ignorant. Let's proceed to chapter 4. And this is really where things begin to get interesting. Chapter 4, Halakha 1. Echad bedin hagadol. But if someone has the link and you don't mind posting it in the chat box, that would be amazing. Echad bedin hagadol. Whether it's the big bedadin, or sanhedre ketana, or the smaller one, or bedin shet shlosha, even a bedin of three. Every one of them must be someone who is ordained from someone who was ordained. And Moshe Rabbeinu is the first one. Samuch literally means to put his hand. You know, we also do semicha to an animal before we slaughter it in the Bed Mikdash. To lean his hand on his head. That Moshe Rabbeinu is the first one to do Simichat Yehoshua. And therefore every Chacham subsequently gave Simicha to the next one. Don't confuse it with the modern Hasmacha of today. And that means that every one of them had an unbroken chain of Simicha that went back to Moshe Rabbeinu. Today's Simicha that we have is not real Simicha. You hear this a lot. There are no such things as a real rabbi. I don't know that's a proper statement. There's no such thing as a real rabbi. There may be no such thing as a real musmach. A musmach, at least in terms of the biblical sense of a musmach. A musmach today, and really this trend of giving out titles to rabbis, it seems, it seems, I don't have, I have not concluded definitively, but Rabbi Tzchak Barbanel mocks that in Ashkenaz too many people have titles. It's kind of like handing out uh, uh, doctoral degrees, he says, in universities. Uh, he said uh, he said exactly those words. Also, you find the Tzitz Eliezer, where Eliezer Waldenberg, the student of Chacham Uziel, he has a Tishuvan, which he shows that this phenomenon of giving modern semicha is really an Ashkenazi thing. The idea behind it is that in a world where you don't know who to trust, especially in an Ashkenazi world, of every person calls himself a rabbi, and everybody says that they are able to teach Torah, and everybody's ruling on matters of halakha, how do you know who to trust and who not to trust? So you ask for their credentials. It's some kind of licensing, but it has very little to do, or if nothing to do, with the original understanding of hasmacha, which was the passing on of a spiritual baton, also an office of leadership in the Jewish people. I shared a story recently. There's a joke that goes around the Ashkenazi rabbinic world. 
that once there was a man, uh, he had to go look for a Dayan. He was a famous masmich in Europe. He wanted to get Hasmachafer. He wanted to get ordained by him. So this young yeshiva student goes to him and he says, Rabbi, can you please ordain me as a rabbi? He says, sure, let me test you in some area of halakha. He says, sure. He says, what about the, the laws of finances and the Shulchan Aruch? He says, no, nah, I, didn't, I didn't study those, Rabbi. So okay, what about the laws of Evan Ha'ezer? You know, marriage, divorce. He says, no, Rabbi, that's for a Dayan. Come on, I'm just, I want to be a rabbi. He says, okay, yeah, you know the laws of Kashrut, He says, Rabbi, please, that's already, you're asking for a lot. He says, okay. Orachaim, you know the laws of prayer, of tefillin, of uh, Shabbat. Of, uh, he said, Rabbi, let me ask you a question. If I had studied Chosha Mishpat and Evan Hezer and Yoreda and Orachaim, do you think I would really need someone to ordain me as a rabbi? Unfortunately, this is the reality of the world that we're in right now, which is that normally the hasmachot of people are not worth the paper that they're written on. And I'm not here to denigrate or to belittle anybody. But it's very easy to be a rabbi and to know nothing. It's very difficult to be a chacham and to be stupid. You can't be wise and be stupid at the same time. And therefore, there's a reason why our chachamim preferred the title of chacham. There's a reason why he said, I don't know, a rabbi, not a rabbi. What does it mean to be a rabbi? I do know that this person is tamir chacham. That this person knows uh, Tanakh. This person knows the Mishnah. He knows the Talmud. He knows the Rambam. He knows Shulchan Aruch. He knows how to rule in halachot. That's a chacham. I, I don't know what it means if not that. Nonetheless, it exists in the world. And I'll again say, I'll judge it favorably, the reason this institution exists is to tell people this is someone you can rely on. Perhaps semicha in this case would be more like reliability of a person as opposed to the ordination of a person. If you look in Halakha Dalid, This Bet Adin has to be ordained where? In Eretz Israel. So you cannot do Hasmacha, at least for uh, this kind of Bedin, outside of Eretz Israel. In Halakha Hei, he mentions the history of who ordains who. And that's why in Vav, En Somchim Zekenim Bechutz Laaretz, we don't ordain outside of Eretz Israel. In Halakha Zayin, Yesh L'Somchim Nismoch Afilu Me'a Bepam Echad. You're allowed to do mass semicha, even a hundred people at once. And David HaMelech ordained 30,000 people in one day. And before I get to Halakha Yul Aleph, let's talk about it. When did Semicha stop? When did we stop having authentic Semicha in the Jewish people that meant that we had members that considered Sanhedrin? The truth is that even among our Chachamim, there is much debate as to when this institution of Semicha stopped. There are historians that debate when the Institute of Semicha stopped. I don't have an answer for you exactly when. But a key story to understanding just how bad things got was by looking in the Talmud regarding the famous Chacham, Rabbi Yudab ben Bava. Rabbi Yudab ben Bava was a Tana. And in his generation, the Romans had already decreed that no longer would we be allowed 
to ordain people in Eretz Yisrael. And any city in which people were ordaining others, that whole city would be massacred, it would be destroyed. And so it became a liability. I mean, you want to be a rabbi and ordain people, do it on your own place, but you're going to get us killed. And it makes you wonder, so why on earth did the Romans care? The Romans cared because this is what kept Jewish autonomy alive. What did he do? I actually have the text of the Gemara in front of me somewhere. Let me pull it up for you. Rav Yehuda says the name of Rav. Zachor oto ha'ish letov. Zachor oto ha'ish letov. Rabbi Yehuda m'bava shmo. May this Rabbi Yehuda m'bava be remembered for good. Sh'ilmalehu, because if it was not for him, bitlu d'nei kenasot b'Yisrael, the laws of kenasot, of fines, would have been disappeared from the Jewish people. Shepam achat, because once it happened, gazra machut ha'risha gizera l'Yisrael, the evil Romans decreed, an evil decree against the Jewish people. Shekol ha'somechi hareg, that anyone who ordains people will be killed. And a city which people were ordained in should be destroyed. And anywhere, you can't even the region will be destroyed. What did Yudah ben Baba do? He took himself and he sat between two big mountains. Between two big cities. And away from two Tchumim, two Shabbat boundaries. Ben Usha and Shfaram. Between Usha and Shfaram. By the way, this place exists till today. If I'm not mistaken, there's allegedly a tomb of his there in this region. Why does he sit between two mountains, between two cities, and in no man's land? What is he trying to accomplish? Not get discovered. Okay, so one is to do it secretly. What are you guys? Witnesses. Witnesses? Okay, that's like Pam. Itai, what do you say? He said if he goes between towns, it's a loophole because then they can't pick which one to destroy. Very good. Very good. He's staying in neutral territory so that nobody else will suffer the consequences of his actions. V'samach sham chamisha zekenim. And he ordained their five elders. Ve'eluhem, and these are them. Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Yoseh, Rabbi Lazar ben Shamoa. He ordains these Chachamim, but it doesn't happen anonymously. The Romans discover them. And by the time they hear the Romans coming, Rebudah ben Bava turns to his students and he tells them, run fast, run for your lives. You are the future of Am Yisrael. You are ordained to be Chachamim. They said, Rabbi, what about you? He said, I'm too old to run. I can't. I won't be able to outrun the Romans. But I did my job. My part I did. You continue carrying the torch forward. And Chachamim tell us the Romans caught Rabbi Baba, and they pierced him 300 times with their spears, metal spears through his body. Our Chachamim say about him that if you would have poured water on one side of him, it would drip out of the other side of him. That's how many holes were put inside of his body. It begins to beg the question, why is ordination so important? Why is hasmacha so important? 
that the Rabbi Yudah ben Bava is willing to risk his life for us. I can't promise you that I have an answer to that question. But that question is at the root of so much that was discussed between Rabbi Lebi ibn Khaviv and Mahari Berav regarding the dispute of the Sanhedrin in 1538. Let's read one halakha. And this last halakha we'll read before we finish telling the story. Halakha Yud Aleph. So if there's a scenario where in Eretz Yisrael there's only one ordained Samuch, Moshiv Shnaim Betzido, he puts two regular people with him. Vesomech Shivim Kechad, Oze Acharze, Vachakach Yasehu Vashivim Bedin Hagadol, Vismechu Batei Dinin Acherim. He will put two rabbis with him. They will ordain 71 people. They will then institute the Sanhedrin. And then they will continue the ordination in the Sanhedrin. Nirin li hadevarim. Says the Rambam, these things appear to me. It appears to me. And it's very rare to find the Rambam write words like it appears to me. The Rambam usually does not give you opinion. Even here, it's a question exactly what the Rambam is saying. Shim hiskimu kol hachachamim she'be'eret Yisrael. That in the future... If all of the Chachamim in Eretz Yisrael decided limnot dayanin to appoint judges velismochotan and to ordain them, harei elu simuchin, these people will be considered simuchin. V'yesh lahen ladun dinei kenasot. V'yesh lahen ismoch lacherim. If at any point in time all of the Chachamim living in Eretz Yisrael will agree together. To institute the semicha, they can do that. They can restore the laws of Kenasot, and they will be able to ordain others and reinstitute the semicha as it used to be. In Ken, So you might ask the question: If that's true, says the Rambam, then why were the Chachamim willing to risk their lives in order to preserve the semicha? For two reasons. So the laws of Kenasot will not be abolished from the Jewish people. The reason for this is a conversation in its own right. And perhaps more importantly, because the Jewish people are already scattered. And how are we possibly going to physically and spiritually gather together all of the Chachamim and Eretz Yisrael so they can ordain a new generation of Musmachim? And then he says, and if there is a Samuch Mipi Samuch, if there's one person who is truly ordained, even though there's no one else with him, he is allowed to judge Dinei Kenasot because he ultimately received his Simicha from the Bedin Hagadol. Says the Rambam, this matter needs further clarification. You see those three words? This matter needs further clarification. It's worse than the beginning words of Nirin li hadivarim. It appears to me. This is even worse. Because now it sounds genuinely like the Rambam is unsure about whether this method of restoring the Semicha will even work. This piece of Rambam is at the root of the entire controversy of 1538. Her our Chachamim 
didn't leave us a blueprint of what to do when the semicha stops. And the source that we have for what to do is here in the Rambam. And this passage of the Rambam, unfortunately because of the way that it's worded, led to tremendous chaos and disaster in Am Yisrael. And before I get to the personal insults that were hurled at each other between Rabbi Levi Ben Chaviv and Mari Berav, let's at least for a few minutes just focus on some of the halachic discrepancies between the two of them and what they really believe. There's a famous Chacham, and, and I'm not sure yet if I'll do another class next week on other attempts to restore a Sanhedrin in Eretz Yisrael, more modern attempts. But this entire conversation surrounding Simicha uh, has led to a lot of controversy throughout the Jewish people. There's a book written by Rabbi Hudaleib Maimon, who's a famous rabbi, one of my favorite Ashkenazi Chachamim in the world. He wrote a book called Chidush HaSanhedrin, the restoring of the Sanhedrin in our newly restored state of Israel. In the back of this work, he records all of the letters between Mahari Berav and Rabbi Lebi Ben Chaviv. And he says that unfortunately most people who have opinion on matters of Sanhedrin and the restoration of the Sanhedrin nowadays have always heard rumors about what happened between Maharal Bach and Mahari Berav, but none of them have ever studied the information inside to know what they were actually arguing about. And I don't fool myself for one moment to think that in the few minutes that we have together, I will be able to give you the entire war between Mahari Berav and Mahal Bach. But I wish to focus just to show you two things. One, that there were halachic arguments that needed to be clarified. And two, that Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is correct. This was not purely a halachic matter, and it divided Am Yisrael into two in Eretz Yisrael. And that divide is something we suffer from. Let's look at a few sources. Let's say that there were two main problems with Mahari Berav's desire to revive the Semichai. So ultimately what Mahari Berav does is, Mahari Berav founds his Sanhedrin. He ordains a number of Chachamim, most notably Maran and the Mabit, Rabbi Moshe Mitrani. There are questions as to who the other Musmachim are. We see that Mahari Berav is ordaining people for a very short period of time after which he stops ordaining people because of this controversy, hoping that he'll be able to figure it out. What ultimately stops Mahari Berav from his plan of the Sanhedrin is because while he's busy trying to solve this controversy between himself, the rabbis of Tzfat, and Ma'al Bach, and the rabbis of Jerusalem, is that ultimately he dies, and the fight dies with him. Maran Rabbi Yosef Cairo seems to be the next generation who has to deal with this. We don't have any overt text in which Maran shares an opinion as to what happened here in the matter of Sanhedrin, we do know two things. We know that Maran writes a Shulchan Aruch, which could either be inspired because he felt like we missed an opportunity of uniting the Jewish people, so at the very least I'll try to unite them around my Shulchan Aruch, and those of you who heard my Shulchan on this topic, this will make a lot of sense too. Also, we find in a book that's attributed to Maran, the Magid Mesharim, where supposedly Maran communicates with angels and so on and so forth, that Maran is rewarded for his efforts in trying to restore the Sanhedrin. Nonetheless, the last musmach that we know of, a musmach, maybe musmach, is the rif, not the rif that you know, but the riaf is probably the best way to refer to him. Rabbi Yoshiahu Pinto, four generations afterwards, is the last that we know. He has a commentary on the En Yaakov. Interestingly enough, he has a commentary 
on the book of the father of Rabbi Libi ibn Khabib, who was the opponent of the Semicha. So let's say that step one, the first matter of dispute was, are we even able to restore a Sanhedrin? So is this true? Is such a mechanism that the Rambam writes, is it possible? Can we restore a Sanhedrin? And the second conversation is really, let's say that we do. What damage will that inflict on the Jewish people's system of halakha? What's going to happen to the Jewish calendar? Maybe the Jewish calendar will fall apart because now we have to start declaring the moon again. And maybe the Jews outside of Israel will have a different calendar than the Jews who are believers in the Sanhedrin. What kind of chaos would that create? And other halakhot that come out of this. Mahari Berav uses the story of Rabbi Yudah ben Bava to show that he was willing to give up his life not because he felt that the Sanhedrin is the only entity that can ordain people. Not that it meant that you can never gather the Chachamim together, but as the Ramam said, that if you wait for the Chachamim to gather together, it will never happen. And that's why Rabbi Yudah ben Bava risked his life to uh, ordain the Sanhedrin. And it's possible, he says, that Rabbi Yudah ben Bava was not familiar with the danger that he was putting himself into. He felt that they wouldn't find him in those mountains, and he didn't really risk his life. Maghalbach, nonetheless, Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib, he feels that the whole story of Rabbi Yudah ibn Bava teaches you that Yudah ibn Bava was willing to risk his life because he knew that if he dies without ordaining people, you can never restore the Sanhedrin. Mord mentioned something earlier that he probably meant to mention, but it's something that we haven't mentioned until now. How does Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib even hear about the fact that Mahari Berav is founding a Sanhedrin in Jerusalem? How does he even hear about it? How does he hear that Mahari Berav is ordaining people in Eretz Israel? He mentioned more that Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib was offended or seemingly that why are you doing this in Sfat and not in Yerushalayim? What about us rabbis in Jerusalem? Famously, you hear people say that the Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib felt that he wasn't included in this project. And because of that, he was, all of the Chachamim didn't agree to the founding of the Sanhedrin. And I'll tell you that that's not true. Because Mahari Berav, as much as Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib in the past had already had run-ins with him in matters of halakha, Rabbi Yitzchak Berav, Rabbi Yaakov Berav, Mahari Berav, he himself notified Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib in Yerushalayim of the Sanhedrin. How? By sending him ordination. He sent him a request to ordain him as a new member of the Sanhedrin. And Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib, not only does he reject the invitation, but he spends the rest of his life waging a war against Mahari Berav in this institution of Sanhedrin. You should know, Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib writes, One of the things that HaKadosh Baruch Hu and His compassion allowed me to merit, it's the greatest thing that I've accomplished until today. Because I was 
I consider it my greatest merit and my greatest victory, more than anything I've accomplished in my life, says Maharal Bach, that I was able to stop this plan of the rabbis of Tzfat from starting a Sanhedrin in its tracks. This is one of my greatest accomplishments. Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib does make a good argument. By the way, there are those who suggest that if only Mahari Berav would have taken into consideration Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib's stance, that maybe Yerushalayim should be the headquarters of the Sanhedrin. That it makes sense. He should have taken Rabbanei Yerushalayim a little more into consideration. That perhaps that, that political maneuvering, that, that ability to present things properly, could have solved this entire problem. Though I'm not convinced. Mahari Berav goes out of his way to make peace with Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib, and he's met back with a fury of fire. And I want to share with you some quotes, because this is how things get exciting. So what's really going on here? What are they really saying to each other? How bad was this that Rabbi Shemtov Gagin says this is one of the 12 breaches in the wall of Israel? Marie Berav, after sending this invitation to Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib, that he should join this new group, this new endeavor. And he sees what the Ma'al Bach writes back. He says, elu enam The only reason he's writing these words are to make a mockery. And then he says, If I was unfamiliar with his unusual and strange writings and stances, I would have said, if I had not seen his writings, his strange writings, I would have said about Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib that this Chacham has probably never opened up a book in his life. He's entirely illiterate when it comes to Judaism. Don't worry. Maharal Bach doesn't allow the insults to go unpunished. And he himself sends back his own insults to Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib. And he says, Zehu gam ken hazarim. This is also from the unusual, strange things that Rabbi Mari Berav says. Lo shum adam. Nobody would agree to the writings of Mari Berav. Lo gadol v'lo kata. Not a giant and not a child. The kol ma shehosif la'arich piv u'rosif b'shono. And as long as Mari Berav keeps talking and writing, hosif la'atmo bushal chlima. Mari Berav, you're embarrassing yourself. The more you talk, the more you embarrass yourself in front of the Jewish people. You're a fool. You don't speak straight. You don't know how to learn. He accuses some terrible things at him. By the way, Maharalbach, Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib, accuses Mari Berav of being one who's hungry for honor, for pride, for ego, for arrogance. He says about him, he says, you know what's blinded Mari Berav? His ta'ava, his yetzahara. He just wants to be famous. He has this need to be a star, to be in the spotlight. Because of that, he's doing all that he's doing, destroying everything he's destroying. Somebody has to help him. Somebody has to intervene. 
It's like he's forcing people to ordain him as the head of the Sanhedrin. A letter that we have from 25 of the rabbis of Tzfat spells out an entirely different story. They write, We've chosen the greatest of all of us, both in quality and quantity. Hachacham HaShalem, Harav HaGadol, the true scholar, the great rabbi, Moreno Harav, our rabbi Berav. He shall be a Samuch, he'll be the head of our yeshiva, and he is our rabbi. This is not something Mari Berav decided for himself. He's not running after pride for himself. Mari Berav himself writes, In the year 1538, awoke in the hearts almost of all the rabbis in Israel. There's only one or two rabbis left in Eretz Israel who didn't sign on this proclamation. And they ordained me, I, the young one in Am Israel. The persecution against Mari Berav gets so severe. I told you he leaves to Egypt. Listen to his own writings. He said, about two or three months after I ordained these Chachamim, almost happened to me what happened to Rabbi Yudah ben Bava. I almost was murdered, he said. There are two people who came to slander me and I did nothing wrong to them. Yishalem lahem Hashem pa'olam haran, HaKadosh Baruch should punish them for what they did to me. And I had to flee from my life outside of Eretz Yisrael. Violence. I wrote two articles in the past on rabbinic violence. And I once, I told a chaver of mine that I wanted to write a book, rabbinic violence, episodes of rabbinic violence in Jewish history, but a few things stopped me. Two main things. One is that I would never be able to stop. The book would just keep on writing and keep on writing and keep on writing. It would never stop. And the second is I have no idea what toilets would come out of it. I have no idea what good would come out of it. So why should I write such a book? What, what good can come from this? Rabbi Lebi Vechaviv, he writes about Mari Berav the following words. I'm saying truthfully, this rabbi, Mari Berav, is not worthy of being ordained. Because of his unusual, perverse, and outright lies when it comes to Torah. It seems that Ma'aral Bach, for whatever reason, is set out to just throw a wrench in the machinery and stop this entire Institute of Smicha at whatever cost it's going to be. Mari Berav, at a certain point in time, turns to Rabbi Levi bin Khabib and says, please will you meet with me? Meet with me. I want to talk to you face to face. I feel like we're miscommunicating because of our letters to each other. But you know, it's a real thing. People text each other, they write messages to each other on Facebook, and you can't tell tone, and you can't tell honesty, and you can't tell a lot of things that humans communicate with each other. In the world of masks, we're having the same problem. Half of the way we pick up on people's clues, cues is by reading their facial expressions. 
And right now we're reading facial expressions that just have to do with people's eyes. I read, I don't know if it's accurate, but I read that babies, you know when you smile at a baby, they smile back, that babies have learned how to tell. The babies born in this last year, who's smiling and who's not by their eyes, by their eyebrows. It's an unusual thing, man. Mari Berav begs Rabbi Levi bin Khabib to come sit with him. Esav et enimo. Please, let's debate each other. Let's discuss other things. Things that I don't want to write. Let us talk them out. I want to that which you want to speak to me face to face, I don't want to see your face. Because I, your face is forbidden for me to see. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And the reward that you're going to give me by meeting with you, you only want to meet with me because you want to denigrate me. You want to embarrass me. I don't want to meet with you. I don't want to be humiliated by you face to face. I'm not interested. Marie Berav pulls out a few things from the history of Rabbi Levi He accuses him of two different places, in Egypt especially, of incorrectly permitting a married woman to marry somebody else. He claims that he's an ignoramus in halakha. I've only given you this much attention because I wanted to make peace with you, but even you are not really a chacham. And then there's one accusation that's really below the belt. And he writes, unlike Rabbi Levi bin Khabib, never did I leave my faith of my forefathers. Even under much duress, I never abandoned the faith of my forefathers for Abu Dazara. He's referring to an episode in the childhood, the youth, no, no childhood, the youth of Rabbi Levi bin Khabib, in which he was forced by the Spanish Inquisition to convert to Catholicism. And Rabbi Levi Ben Khabib responds, it's not fair. You don't know what I was under. I was a young boy, he says, first. I was a young boy. He said, but that lasted less than a year until I was able to reach safety. I was able to reach a place and I returned to the faith of my forefathers. And I've shown, look at me, I'm a chacham, I learned Torah, look at what I've done to show that I'm a believer in Am Yisrael. I didn't even believe then in Abu Dazara. But once these wars become personal, there's really nothing that can turn back the tide. And I look at Maran and I say, I don't know what Maran felt about the Samicha. But I do know, but if I can just before I say, there was a motivation about the Inquisition. One of the reasons Mahari Berav wanted to restore Sanhedrin was because there were many Jews, crypto-Jews, who were forced to convert to Catholicism in the Inquisition, who felt that the only way to atone for their worship of Abu Dazara was by doing something, again, receiving Malkot, receiving lashes from a Sanhedrin in Eretz Yisrael. Marabach was adamant that you can do Teshuvah even without a Sanhedrin. But the motivation to help the Jews who were fleeing from the Spanish Inquisition, and ultimately that's hurled as an insult to Rabbi Levi bin Khabib, perhaps for not wanting to help Jews who were just like him. And you see that at this moment in time, it's post-Spanish Inquisition, Spanish expulsion, not post-Inquisition. 
You know when the Inquisition stopped? Do you know when the last Spanish Inquisition office closed? In New Mexico. It's got a different name. Oh, very good. More. So the, the Spanish Inquisition office is still open. There's still a name of the, the church has a, an Inquisition office. They don't call that anymore. It's not good for PR anymore. Uh, but you know, rabbis have a lot to learn from the Catholic Church about PR, just, just for the sake of... In the SNP in the UK, there's still on Yom Kippur, there's still Tzifilah for the people that are uh, you know, objects to the Inquisition. Really? Please send it to me. I, I, wow, that's amazing. In New Mexico, that's a state here in the United States, in New Mexico, the Spanish Inquisition office closed its doors, or more correctly, changed its name in the year 1927. So you're talking 1492 to 1927. Now it changed, obviously. They weren't burning people on crosses in 1927. But this hunt for Jews or any non-believers, heretics inside of the Catholic community, was something, it's still something. The hunting of the other is a real thing in, in that faith. But I look at the Jewish people that were persecuted, that were destroyed, find themselves in Eretz Israel. They're willing to start a Sanhedrin together. They believe in the Simicha. They want to restore something. And ultimately the debate boils down to Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib says, the Rambam says that you need all of the rabbis of Eretz Israel. And I object. I object. And Mahari Berav says, I want you to join us. And Rabbi Levi says, I don't want to. I object. And Mahari Berav issues a halachic ruling showing that every time halacha requires all of something, it only requires a majority of something, it doesn't require all of something. And he goes ahead with his plans for Semicha because of the majority of rabbis of Eretz Israel, and it's everyone except for one or two. The majority of rabbis of Eretz Israel agreed to make a Sanhedrin and restore Semicha. We have the right to do so. But ultimately, as I told you, Maran's generation didn't merit to see the Sanhedrin. And Maran already scratches uh, these plans and, and starts something new. And writes the Shulchan Aruch for the Jewish people. And the tragedy of what could have been. What if? What if? But I don't feel comfortable leaving you today sharing with you that Maharal Bach was a bad person and Mari Berav was the hero of the story. I believe wholeheartedly there are two different attitudes on how to deal with tragedy and redemption of the Jewish people. So give me just a few minutes, I'll finish my show with you today. Mari Berav sees tragedy. He sees problems. He sees destruction. He sees chaos. He sees Jews that are fleeing in throngs to Eretz Yisrael. And his attitude is, there must be something that we can do to end the suffering of Am Yisrael. There must be something that we can do to bring about the redemption. To put an end to the suffering of Am Yisrael. To bring about the Geula. What's the next step we can do? To have a Sanhedrin. By the way, it's not for today's Shiyu. Maybe for next week's Shiyu. My dear friend will be Yosef Zernigan. She'll live and be well. He sits in our Bedin in Shiviti. Yosef Zernigan speaks very often about this topic. That in order to have a Melech, a Mashiach, a King Mashiach, you need a Sanhedrin to ordain a king. You can't just declare yourself king. You need a Sanhedrin. In the Shuvot Geonim, the Geonim mentioned that in order to be a prophet, not to receive prophecy, but to hold the official office of prophet, you need a Sanhedrin. 
The Rambam rules in the laws of Kohen Gadol that you need a Sanhedrin to make a Kohen Gadol the Kohen Gadol. So everyone who's waiting for the Mashiach, Mari Berav says, you're waiting for nothing. There's an action that you have to take. You must restore the Sanhedrin. Which better time than with Maran and the and Ramak, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, and the Arizan, Rabbi Chaim Vital, and Rabbi Shlomo Al-Kavetz, and Rabbi Lezer Azikri, and Mari Berav, and all of this generation. Which greater generation than us? But there's one voice of opposition. And it ultimately ruins it for all of us. That voice of opposition was not crazy. Rabbi Levi ibn Khabib has a track record. He has history. There's a famous Rabbi Shlomo Molcho. Rabbi Shlomo Molcho is a personality you're going to have to look up on your own. He deserves a shiur in his own right. Rabbi Shlomo Molcho is a Jew that's born a Catholic who returns to the Jewish faith and in a very short amount of time becomes a Kabbalist. That short amount of time leads the Kabbalists to say, wow, look how amazing he is. He must have a special neshama that in such a short amount of time he became a Mekubal. It leads other Chachamim to say, how can a person who yesterday didn't live a Jewish life, today he's the Mekubal of the generation, how could it be? He starts talking to the Jewish people about redemption, about Mashiach, about Geulah. And Rabbi Leviv and Chabib throws him out of Jerusalem. And Rabbi Leviv and Chabib said, if I would have left him here, there would be no Jews left. Because they would have been swept away with this fallacy, this messianic idea that Rabbi Shlomo Mocho was spreading here in Jerusalem. Rabbi Levi ben Khabib was not an evil person. He was one of our greatest Chachamim. Rabbi Levi ben Khabib was protective of the Jewish people. And he felt that the Gula is going to have to happen when the Creator wants it to happen. And not to force HaKadosh Baruch Hu's hand. And not to promise these Jews that have just fled the Inquisition again and again and again. To promise them that we're going to bring about the redemption. Because you think that you're going to solve the problem. You think you're going to bring everybody back to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You think you're going to make everybody observant of Halakha and Torah Mitzvot. You don't know what's going to happen the day after you found your Sanhedrin. And the Mashiach still doesn't come. Because the crisis of faith that you are going to put Am Yisrael through. That crisis of faith will destroy them more than anything that they've been to until now. But in this argument, I have no cards. I'm not going to stick my head between the two great mountains of Ibu Dhabi and Bava. I can't tell you what was correct and what was not. I think it's quite obvious which camp I feel most comfortable with. But I can tell you that in our generation we have this problem. There's a balance that has to be maintained. Within believing that we've come back to Eretz Israel and we've restored our homeland in Eretz Israel. Our belief that we're on the verge of the redemption, but also not getting carried away. Because those of us who got carried away, after 2005, with the expulsion of Gush Katif, are still hurting, and are still doubting our faith. With the return of the Sinai, with talks about giving away the Golan Heights, with problems of church and state and society in Israel, if this is the redemption, then we've lost our faith. How could the Kodesh would bring us back only to throw us out of our homes again? How could a Jewish government bulldoze Batei Knesset and to remove Sifrei Torah? How could it be a crime to live in Eretz Israel in a Jewish state? This war here between Mahari Berav and Rabbi Levi bin Khabib regarding the Sanhedrin, you and I cannot stop. You and I cannot fix. What we can fix is to keep our messianic fervor alive but in check. To believe like Rabbi 
Yaakov Berav. That at any moment in time, if our Chachamim will stand up and found the Sanhedrin, and everybody will agree that we will be from those who jump on board. So chas v'shalom, we won't say, look, there was one who was missing from the table. But at the same time, not to leave everything up to the Mashiach. Mashiach creates lazy Jewish communities. We don't have to solve problems of agunot for women because Mashiach will come soon. We don't have the problems of child abuse in the Jewish community. Don't worry, the Mashiach will come and solve all your problems. We don't have to stop problems of poverty and everything because Mashiach will come and solve the problems. We don't have to take care of uh, refugees and immigrants because Mashiach will solve all the problems. That's also crazy. It's crazy because you were put on this earth to do a job. We were put on this earth to do a job. And I think that, if anything, in this Bet Midrash, we like to make peace between Chachamim, even those who never managed to make peace in their lifetime. I think that on this element, not the element of the Sanhedrin, but in this matter, of balancing messianic fervor and faith with a realistic keeping it in check, is the greatest kavod that we can give to both of these Chachamim. We will continue marching forward actively, but also we'll make sure that it doesn't stop us from doing the things, believing the things, doing what it takes to bring about a geulah, a redemption. Next week, we'll be moving on. But for today, I just want to leave you with a, a blessing. And that is that I hope that in your days and in mine, Yehuda will be saved. That Am Israel will live again. will live securely. That we will have a Bedin Hagadol in Yerushalayim. But until then, we won't stop learning. Until then, we won't stop praying. Until then, we won't stop doing what we need to do in order to bring the world to the closest messianic place of redemption that could possibly be in. God willing, I pray that if not us, that at least our children will see the day of Hashiva Shoftenu Kavarishona V'yoatzenu Kivatechila. Hashem, it should happen to us very, very soon.